Remain standing as we read together in Acts chapter 3. We pick back up in our study in Acts in chapter 3. In verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask, ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the, Peter, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Father, we come now to the hearing of your word, and we pray that it would seep deeply into our bones, that we would hear you speak to us this morning from your word, that you would instruct us, that you would convict us, that you would move in us in such a way that we would respond to your glory I pray that you would lead us to repentance. I pray that if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. 
I pray that you would be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we continue our study, um, we are in Acts 3 today. We had a break last week uh, because of the installation service. We'll have a couple more weeks of break in the, in the coming weeks for, for Holy Week, for Palm Sunday, and for Easter. Uh, but we'll pick back up in Acts from there. But I just want to remember or remind you where we finished up in the end of chapter 2. If you remember, the, uh, the, the end of chapter 2 had everybody living together in a sense of harmony, growing in grace. Uh, the Lord had added to their number greatly. And Derek Thomas writes that this was an idyllic portrait that Luke had painted. It's almost, it would almost be nice if that was the end of the story, if that was the close of Acts, that this is how it all ended. Everyone living uh, in harmony, everyone growing in grace. But as we know, this is only chapter 2 that has just ended, and there's much more to the story that is to come. Thomas goes on to say this was the proverbial calm before the storm, because what we're seeing happen in this chapter of Acts precedes the, the first real persecution that the church experiences, at least that we have recorded. Because following this in chapter 3, and not to get too far down ahead of the story, uh, Peter and John are going to end up in jail as a result of this sermon. And so we're going to see the church persecuted, the very beginning of what would be more persecution. So let's keep that in mind. Now remember, too, that Luke is a historian, and so he, is, he has gathered his information and he's writing. This is a synopsis of only one of the miracles, certainly, that the apostles saw God do through them. Uh, this was only one sermon of many that Peter and the other apostles preached. And even this, we don't have all the details. We just have the details that God saw fit that we need in this sermon. And so let's look at it with that in mind. Now, Peter and John were going about their normal daily pattern. The text says they were going up for their afternoon prayer. So Jews would have gone to the temple for morning prayer about 9 o'clock at the third hour and at, definitely at the third hour and the ninth hour at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. These were the times of prayer that would have co- coincided with the sacrifices in the temple. Now, early Christians didn't separate themselves from Judaism uh, right away, as we see. They still went and practiced this. We see that throughout Acts. We see Paul do this as well in his epistles. Where did he go when he entered a new town? He went to the synagogue. Uh, This wasn't syncretism. They weren't joining this, this, their new religion to an old religion, but rather they saw themselves truly as fulfilled Jews, that they had seen and recognized that Jesus was and is the Messiah. So they're going up about their normal business, going up to the temple, to the gate. And here is this man who has been there all along. He has been there for years, begging. Why? Well, he was born lame, verse 2 says, some kind of physical defect in his feet and his ankles. And he was brought up daily, the text tells us in verse 2. He was dependent on other people. He couldn't get there himself. And so daily, people, probably family members or close friends, brought him up to the temple to do the only thing that he could do, and that was simply ask. Ask for help. And it was a strategic location because there at the entrance to the temple, you were catching everybody going into the time of prayer and worship and coming out of the time of prayer and worship, and if for nothing 
more noble. It was simply a, a good strategic approach because if anyone had any guilt going in, they might take care of it because almsgiving was seen as meritorious to the Jews. And of course, afterwards, maybe moved by their time of prayer and worship, they would feel compelled to be merciful and give. So he was in this location. And he, uh, we don't know this from this chapter, but it, chapter 4 tells us that he was over 40 years old. So this man had been in this lot. He had, that, this had been his lot in life for some time. He had been unable to do for himself, dependent on others. And so this was just another ordinary day for him. He wasn't at all expecting what was about to come. Verse 3 tells us that he asks Peter and John for money, and he asks expecting to get something from them. Verse 5 says that he expected it. What he got instead, of course, startled him. Peter looks at him and in essence says, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give to you. And you have to wonder what his reaction, this crippled man's reaction was in that moment. Like, oh, no, I I don't want a speech. I don't want to hear your thoughts on begging if this is good or noble or taking advantage or whatever. Just give me money, right? And that's not at all what's coming. And if you think about it, Peter's motivation, uh, of course, was we know from what we've already seen in Acts and what we're going to continue to see was to magnify Christ. Uh, This was not a display of Peter's power. This was the display of the power of the Holy Spirit in him, the power of Christ to heal this man. Unfortunately, uh, as even people who claim to be Christians can get caught up in, this, um, uh, in, in the misunderstanding of how money is to be perceived in the kingdom of God. Money is a part of life. We can't function without it. It's a reality that we all have to deal with. Um, but money can also get us off track, and that's... Uh, clearly being seen today in false teachings like the prosperity gospel, where people claim that with faith, with enough faith, God will give you both health and wealth. And unfortunately, this preys on the poor, those who are hopeless in poverty. They're taken advantage of through this false teaching. We have to be on guard against it. But Solomon told us there's nothing new under the sun, and we know this to be true. And this is nothing new uh, today that we're seeing. It's been around. Uh, There's a story of Thomas Aquinas, and it was interesting. This story, although told with some varying details, was in nearly every commentary that I read on this passage in Acts. The story of Thomas Aquinas, he was either with Pope, uh, Pope Innocent II. Others said that he was with a cardinal. Some say he was with the Pope in a chamber. Some say that he was out walking. But Whatever the story, whatever actually happened, it was something to the effect of uh, the Pope, and we know at that part preceding the Reformation, that things in the church had become about money. And the Pope said, in effect, well, no longer can we say silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas responded, yes, Holy Father, neither can we say rise up and walk. You see, the minute that we get our attention off of God as our provider And as our security, which we often do if we're honest, especially when it comes to money, money tends to be our security, it takes the opportunity for the power of God to be put on display. Not that anything we do takes away from God's power, but in the sense that God's power is displayed in weakness. God's power is put on display. So take this and apply it not just with things that are financial, 
But this is true with our own our physical health. It's true with our own skills and what we're able to do that our attention is not on those things. Our security and the hope that we have is not in those things. It's in Christ. And this is what Peter is doing for this man who was not doing a bad thing. He was simply asking for the means by which he could live. He was asking for help. But Peter was helping him see that what he needed was so much more. And you and I are like this crippled man in that we come to God unable to do anything, unable to contribute anything, unable to rise up and walk on our own except from the part of God's mercy in that he commands us and empowers us and gives us new life to do that, to rise up and walk. So let's not depend on our own skills, but let's look to Christ for the security and strength that he gives. So Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, says in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in verse 6, rise up and walk. Now you have to imagine how much time elapsed and what was going through this man's head as all of this was happening. But the text tells us that it was immediate, so not much time happened. And as Peter will soon explain in his sermon, he's not the one healing this man. It's the very first thing he does is explain, it's not by my power, not by my piety that this man is healed, but in the name of Jesus or by Jesus' power. He commands him in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So don't miss these details here. Jesus Christ, he's the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. This is who God has told you about over and over. This is who Jesus is. But also, he's of Nazareth. He's a man. He walked among us. This, had not, this was not many weeks after the crucifixion, after the time of Passover, uh, when all of these people would have been witnesses to what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. The term of Nazareth, Peter, Peter's almost turning this around, because this term, uh, a Nazarene, was almost an insult. It would, it would be like saying, you know, uh, Bob the Redneck or, or something. It was a derogative, insulting term of Nazareth. And, and Peter reminds his hearers that, well, you remember what Philip's response was even before he met Jesus. You know, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? This was not the place to be from. This was not a place of pedigree. Uh, and we know that our Savior was a man of no reputation, a man of sorrows. He came in humility as one who was weak to put on the power of strength for God's glory. So Peter's connecting these dots. Jesus is a man from Nazareth, but Jesus is also the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the Promised One. And he reaches down and grabs his hand, and pulling him up, the man, verse 7 says, is instantly healed. Now, at this point, Luke almost puts on his uh, doctor's cap, so to speak. He begins using some terminology of physiological terms terms that would have been used in the medical world, and frankly, terms that were used nowhere else in the Bible, the term for, for feet and the term for ankle or ankle bone, these are the only places these are used in Scripture. Because Luke wants us to understand what happened here was a real physical miracle, something that could possibly be accomplished today through surgery, but would still take weeks and months of time to heal and for the... Um, uh, time for healing and time for recovery for physical therapy. But this healing was immediate. And he, then, as if to emphasize this even more, he describes the cripple's newfound abilities in verse 8, that he leapt up, 
that he stood, that he began to walk, walking and leaping, walking, he repeats over and over. And in addition to his fully restored feet and ankles, he also responds by giving glory to God, not just walking and leaping, but walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and praising God, verse 8 and verse 9. And if you're familiar, you can't come to this passage of Scripture and not, if you grew up in the church, there were children's songs, right? And you start singing that song. Uh, at least I did. I won't sing it for you now. I wouldn't put you through that. But uh, walking and leaping and praising God. So there's all this attention on, you know, don't, don't misunderstand me, Luke says. This was a real, immediate, instant miracle, a true healing. But now what's happening is it's getting the people's attention in the temple. So Peter and John weren't the only ones there. This was a time of day when most of the, the Jews would come to the temple to pray. So he's got an audience. And now without ordering this newly healed man to do so, he has accomplished the task of getting everybody's attention because I can imagine there wasn't a lot of walking and leaping and praising God going on in the temple. There wasn't a lot of shouting and jumping. Uh, that this was probably a place that was a little more reserved, people were a little more quiet, and now here is all of this noise and commotion, and it accomplished the task of getting everyone's attention. And now Peter begins his sermon. So the first thing he wants us to see, though, is that this is done not by man's power, but by the power of Jesus. This is how the healing was done. The second thing Peter wants his hearers to understand, and Luke writes in this text, is that Jesus is the foretold Messiah. So the crowd's building, everyone's attention is uh, here, and verse 11 says people were utterly astounded. Again, these kind of extreme words that were used in the original language to show how shocked and surprised, kind of the shock and awe uh, idea uh, that people had in what had just happened. And then Peter begins his sermon, verse 12, men of Israel, and keep in mind it says, with the healed man clinging to him and John. Now, This guy who had just been healed was not clinging to he and John because he needed to. Remember, he had been instantly healed, fully restored, but almost out of a sense of gratitude probably, holding on to them, not wanting to let them go because for 40 plus years, he had been unable to walk and to move on his own. So he is so grateful. And to the two men that through this miracle was accomplished, he doesn't want to let them go. But this, in God's providence, also accomplishes this visible, tangible, clear illustration that's standing up before the people, almost like when someone speaks and gives an illustration and holds it up so you can see it, an object lesson. It was a perfect object lesson. This man standing here as Peter and John, uh, it was Peter rather, uh, proceeded to explain what had just happened. Now, the sermon that Peter preaches is not like the sermon that we saw in Acts 2, where he took passages of Scripture and explained them. But his sermon is not unbiblical either. Rather, he takes ideas or a well-developed biblical theology from the Old Testament and begins to preach from these ideas, ideas that his Jewish hearers would have understood. He uses names of God and wording that was clearly recognized by his hearers as that from Scripture. I mean, without even planning, it came out in our reading this morning from the Psalms. One of these names uh, was there in the Psalm that we'll see here in the text. So this would have been something the hearers would have been uh, familiar with. And he uses this reference uh, that that the Jews would have recognized. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. 
So he's identifying with them. He's a fellow Jew. He connects with them. He says, this God, verse 13, glorified his servant Jesus. This God anointed, he set apart Jesus. He put his sign and seal on Jesus for you to see that he was the promised one. He also calls him a servant. Another thing that Jewish people would have understood was a description of the Messiah. There are the servant songs in Isaiah in particular that describe the promised one as a servant. Isaiah 42.1 is just one. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring, bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. See, the Jews were looking for the justice, right? They wanted uh, to be rid from the rule of the Romans. They wanted freedom in their own country to not have an occupying force. And they got focused on that, and they missed the Messiah who came as a humble servant. And they were looking for justice on this earth that will never be found completely. They missed the justice that is to come in the new heavens and earth when it will be perfect. And then in verse 14, Peter calls him the holy and righteous one. This is the name that we saw in the psalm that we read this morning. The holy and righteous one, again in Isaiah uh, 43, for I am the Lord your God, the holy one of Israel, your Savior. This messianic language connected to, this is the language that now Peter's using to preach from. Verse 15, he refers to Jesus as the author of life. In other words, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is God. He wants his people to see that Jesus is the Messiah and that they've missed it. And his hearers would have understood all of these connections. They would have understood this. They would have got this. They would have seen the point. Peter's doing a masterful job, weaving it all together. But he's not only explaining that Jesus is the Messiah, but at the same time, while he's proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah, he's explaining their guilt. Throughout this sermon, you see that he says, it was Jesus that you denied, Jesus that you handed over, Jesus that you had crucified. It's almost like uh, when David was found in sin and Nathan came to him and said, you are the man, you are guilty. Everyone in this audience there and everyone in this audience here, every one of us is guilty before God. There are none righteous, no, not one. Verse 12, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. In other words, you have rejected the Messiah. But he doesn't leave them there. This wasn't a message of guilt and shame. It was a message of hope because it was the message of the gospel. So he lays out their, the, 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 what actually happened. You know, Jesus is the one who has healed this. Jesus is the Messiah. We now are all guilty before God for rejecting the Messiah. But now here's the hope. And here's the hope of the gospel, verse 17 the blessings and curses. He says, now, brothers, Peter again identifies these fellow Jews, his brothers. He is a Jew also. But there's a deeper meaning that hopefully we don't miss here. Do you notice the number of times he says, you denied him? He said it twice. I think that's interesting that he said, you guys denied him. Because what had Peter done? He had denied Jesus as well. 
Not twice, but three times. And I don't know how many people would have known that, but I have a feeling that more than a few might have known that. That this was the man who denied Jesus emphatically three times. And yet, what had happened to Peter? Peter was shown mercy and he was restored. So Peter now is almost, first he shows you this man who's physically healed as almost a foreshadow of what he now becomes as the object lesson. That this now is what's available to you. I too denied him, and yet I've been made right. I've been restored. I've been forgiven, and you too can be forgiven. You see in verse 19, he talks about sins being blotted out. Verse uh, 19, rather, uh, that sins can be forgiven. Verse 20, that restoration and refreshment and restoring can take place. And verse 26, that blessing is coming. Peter was forgiven, Peter was restored, and Peter was blessed, even though he had denied Christ. This is the big picture story of Scripture. It's the story of redemption. This is what everything is leading to, is the story of redemption found in Jesus Christ. Everything is pointing to that. And now Peter explains this so clearly. In verse 18, Peter states that God foretold by the prophets that the servant would suffer. And again, the Jews had missed this. They were looking for a triumphant Messiah, and they missed that he would come as a suffering servant, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And yet we too then expect our lives to be comfortable, and we get surprised when we face difficulties. And why should we? He goes on then and says, Repent that your sins may be blotted out in verse 19. This is a term that would have, they would have understood to be used with writing and with uh, the scribes. Uh, the ink in this time was not as acidic as it is today. It, didn't, it wasn't absorbed into the paper, and so it, they were in the habit of it was erasable. They could take wet cloth and wipe it off. And this was the wording that he used, that as ink can be erased from paper, so your sins can be blotted out or wiped out or erased. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to tell you that your sins, the weight of your sins, the guilt, the shame, can all be lifted by looking to faith in Christ. And for you who are believers, I want to tell you that the weight of sin has been lifted, that there is no stain and no mark on you in your standing before God, that your sins have been blotted out. Of course, We forget this, don't we? And we struggle to believe this because we still live in this body. And we still fight the effects of sin. And we live in a fallen world where the remains of sin are. And one day when Christ returns, there will be a time where there isn't even a trace of sin. And that is what we look forward to the most. And this is certainly what we celebrate when we come to the table of the Lord's Supper. That our sins have been blotted out. Verse 20, he says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This refreshment that Peter's describing is both now and not yet. There are certainly times of refreshment that we get to experience in the presence of the Lord here in this life. But they're short-lived, they're temporary, and we look forward to a time when they're permanent. I think um, uh, last Sunday... The installation service was a time of refreshing for the body, or a time of refreshment. It was a time of of restoration. 
Uh, at least I haven't heard anything negative. I've only heard encouragement that what the Lord did, and that was what, it was way beyond, you know, my expectations of what I thought the service would be. I felt like the, the Lord was really glorified. I think of um, other times in our lives where we experience this refreshment from the presence of the Lord. This is certainly what happens at the table of the Lord. We come and we're refreshed being reminded and celebrating and feeding upon what Jesus has done for us. But the refreshment is also um, pointing us to a, a hope further on down when the refreshment will be permanent in the new heavens and in the new earth. So thank God for the moments of refreshment that we have now, but know that so much more is coming. And then thirdly, we see in verse 26 that God raised up His servant to bless you by turning every one of you from wickedness. It's a blessing to be turned from wickedness. Anyone who has a testimony of being saved from addiction or enslavement or anything that we consider harsh knows this and and usually shares this as part of their testimony. But even if if you're not a murderer or a gang member or an addict or or whatever you think is, is a grotesque sin, you have no less been rescued from wickedness. All of us have been rescued from wickedness. There is none righteous, no, not God. The blessing that is at salvation when we are certainly turned from wickedness is also a here and not yet. It's also ongoing in the sense that God continues to turn us from wickedness. This is part of His grace and His mercy as we fight sin. He gives us the power to turn from from wickedness, to resist temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God continually turns us from wickedness in His mercy as He sanctifies us. But note that it's not just a message of blessings. There's also a curse to be found here. Look in verse 23. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Hear this serious word. If you're not a believer, if God's Spirit is working on your heart this morning, if you feel the weight of your sin, know that this doesn't have to be your destiny. This turning from God, this turning from His servant, His Messiah. Don't ignore Him today, but turn in repentance. That's what repentance means. It means to turn away from and turn to God in faith, knowing that He will blot your sins out, knowing that you can be forgiven, that you can be refreshed and restored, that you can be blessed in Him. And this is the same message that we have today. This is our hope, and this is what we come to now in the table. That we come to celebrate what has happened. We come to feast on the Lord Himself, to be reminded that in Jesus... We are forgiven, our sins are wiped away, that we are refreshed and we are restored, and we are blessed now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would now move in us and through us to nourish us and feed us, not only on your word, but now on your sacrament. I pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would use this time to strengthen those who feel feeble today, who feel weak in their faith, who don't feel worthy to come, but are still clinging to and trusting Jesus, Lord, would you strengthen them through this today? And Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray this would be a time of conviction that you would draw people to yourself. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of the gospel that is in Jesus. We thank you now in his name. Amen.